Welcome to the Read by the Author podcast, season two, the official season two. We are back after taking a little mini in betweeny season break for Tara Benner's Blood Ties. This is the first episode of season two, which means we are going to start Resonance, which just to like confuse everybody, Resonance is number 1.5 in the Echo Trilogy. It's for people on video. It's this, well, it's half of this. This is Sonance paperback, which includes Resonance and Dissonance. And as you can see, again, if you're on the video, these are little shorties. They're just the novellas. So there's two novellas in the series, Resonance and Dissonance. We're reading Resonance for season two. It is Echo Trilogy 1.5. So, you know, we'll just throw all kinds of numbers that don't fit together into this. (laughs) So Resonance directly picks up after Echo in Time, which was season one of this show. Lex is the main protagonist for the entire Echo trilogy. So we're going to follow Lex the whole time as I'm reading this. But in book two, Time Anomaly, which will be season three of this podcast. And I apologize if you hear fireworks. It is June 26th, which is that time of year around here for people to just shoot off lots of fireworks. But yeah, Time Anomaly will be season three. It is book two in the series. But because I... decided to do these novellas as well. We're just going to throw everything off. At this point in my writing, so this I wrote maybe like 2013, 2014. At this point in my writing, so Echo and Time was the first book that I wrote all by, all by myself. And I wrote it at the same time as I was writing after the ending with Lindsay Polk. So I was still figuring out my structure of writing, I guess, how how I structured a book, how long my chapters were, all of that stuff. In Resonance, the chapters are a lot shorter than in Echo and Time. And my chapters don't get as long as Echo and Time. Again, they stick more in the shorter end. Not like short compared to other people's, just shorter than Echo and Time. So uh, episodes from now on will probably have more than two chapters, which was kind of the norm Two chapters was kind of the norm for season one. So for season two and on, we're probably looking at more like four chapters per episode. So we'll see. All right. Resonance. One. Push and pull. I'm almost ready. I called to Marcus and I'm just (laughs) realizing that I'm going to have to recall my accents that I was doing. (laughs) I'm almost ready, I called to Marcus from the tiny bathroom attached to our bedroom. The building the Council of Seven used as their headquarters in Florence was a stunning Renaissance palazzo, filled with all the high-ceilinged chambers, arches, gilding, and frescoes one could ask for. But the living quarters on its top two floors were definitely on the small side, and small living quarters, though exquisitely furnished, meant itty-bitty bathrooms. Take your time, little Ivanov. The meeting with Sotheby's isn't for another two hours. Since Florence was one of the few Negeret-heavy cities where Marcus didn't own a house, he had decided it was the perfect time to meet with an agent to start shopping for our very first Lex and Marcus Ferenzi home. I caught myself grinning like a fool in the mirror hanging over the pedestal sink, Excitement shone in my eyes, making my carmine irises appear even more crimson than usual. And only adding to my giddiness was the fact that this would be my first time actually leaving the palazzo's heavily guarded grounds. The gardens might have been just as wondrous as the palace itself, but they were surrounded by walls, and even though I was permitted to wander through them without any of my guards, 
I was still separated from the outside world. I had never been to Florence before, and today's outing would finally give me a chance to see some of the sights I had only heard about since waking from my regenerative slumber, the Ponte Vecchio Bridge, the Duomo, and the other basilicas, the Fountain of Neptune. I was ridiculously eager, and as such, spending way too much time on my appearance. For whatever reason, primping tended to steady my nerves. Staring into the mirror once more, I finished my makeup with a dab of my favorite vanilla plum lip balm, then held my eyes wide and tried not to blink as I put in my plain old brown-colored contacts. I plucked the necklace hanging from one of the mirror's many flourishes and headed out to the bedroom. Help, please. I held the necklace out to Marcus, who was sitting on the foot of the bed in nothing but charcoal gray slacks and an unbuttoned white dress shirt. His eyes were closed, and his body was completely still. He didn't even appear to be breathing. For nearly a minute, I watched him study the strong, clean lines of his face, the bronzed skin and contours of muscle visible through the opening in his shirt, thinking it was unfair for any living being to be so inhumanly beautiful, especially when, underneath all of that enticing flesh, there was enough charisma, sharp intellect, and passion for a dozen men. But he wasn't a dozen men. He was Marcus ancient and world-weary Marcus, and he was all mine. Finally, he took a slow, deep breath. I sighed. He was in Otked, the hypometabolic state a Nejaret went into when his ba left his body to wander through the Ot. The very fabric of space and time to view the events of the past, present, and possible futures. And Marcus's ba, his soul, was in the Ot. Again. In the week since the encounter was set in Hatshepsut's mortuary temple, his need to check the ot, to test its stability and measure the intensity of the nothingness that threatened to overtake it, had increased to the point of obsession. It wasn't that he needed to do it, dozens of other Nezirets had been assigned that task specifically, but he didn't seem to trust their observations. At every possible moment, he plunged into the ot, and it was getting a tad irritating, especially considering that I was avoiding the ot. After the months I had spent in there as Set's prisoner, I wanted to keep my boss safe and sound in my body as much as possible. There was only one surefire way to draw Marcus back to his body. Back to me. Marcus, I said in a sing-song voice. Hitching up the skirt of my white linen sundress, I crawled onto the bed and straddled his legs. I slipped my hands under his shirt and ran my fingers over the ridges of muscle on his abdomen and chest, then back down until my fingertips touched his belt buckle. I started to unfasten it. You know, you really should be more careful about where you leave your body. Who knows what someone might do with it? Touching my lips to the honey-colored skin at the crook of his neck, I smiled. When Marcus's ball is away, Lex will play. Marcus inhaled suddenly, exhaling with a rough chuckle. Ah, little Ivanov, I see you're ready. I didn't miss his double entendre as his hands slid up my thighs, and he grasped my hips, pressing me against him more firmly. Always. Again, he chuckled. Have I been neglecting you? 
I nodded against his neck, whimpering when I tried to move against him but couldn't. His hold on my hips was relentless. Hmm. I must think long and hard how I can remedy my poor treatment of you. An eager grin spread across my face until someone knocked on the door. My grin withered. Uh, I don't know if I ever gave Vali an accent. Um, grandfa- grandfather? Gra- grandfather? It was Vali, a mountainous man who was one of Marcus's myriad of Nezaret grandchildren, and also one of my head bodyguards. I apologize for interrupting, but there is a phone call for you. Someone from the Galleria dell'Accademia here in Florence. He says it's urgent. A growl of frustration rumbled in Marcus's chest as his fingers unclenched from my hips and he stood, setting me on my feet. He placed his hands on either side of my face and stared into my eyes. His pupils slowly constricted as he restrained his desire, obsidian giving way to his black-rimmed golden irises. A thousand apologies, little Ivanov. He kissed me, the lightest brush of his silken lips against mine. I will make amends for my recent transactions soon. He kissed me again, the light pressure deepening with promise. It's so funny reading this from, I mean, I know I read Echo in Time. It's only been a month since I was reading that. But reading stuff that I wrote like almost 10 years ago is still, it's just strange. The structure of my paragraphs is different. I, I break up my, my, para- my paragraphs now are a lot shorter so it's fine. I'm, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, oh, I should put like a space or an enter. Enter, enter. I really want to put an enter right here. <laughs> I exhaled as he pulled away and headed for the door. He opened it with one sharp jerk. Volley nodded at me in greeting, and I offered him a small smile as he handed Marcus a cordless phone. Marcus turned away from the doorway and, staring at the gold-embossed scarlet wallpaper behind the mahogany headboard, raised the phone to his ear. This is Marcus Bahur. To whom am I speaking? He pulled the phone away when a man on the other end started speaking, his voice far too loud for Marcus's sensitive hearing. Luckily, since my hearing was almost as heightened as his, I could hear the other man's accented voice quite clearly. Superintendent Pietro Gaspari, signore. I am calling you about the Michelangelo sculpture you have so generously loaned to Dell'Accademia. Marcus brought the receiver closer to his mouth. La donna triste. Yes, I am sorry, signore, but it would appear there was a break-in over the night, and she has been defaced. Marcus's left hand clenched into such a tight fist that his knuckles blanched. In what way was la donna defaced? A symbol was etched into her chest, directly over her heart. Marcus closed his eyes for several long seconds, taking slow, even breaths. I see. Grazie, Signore Gaspari. I'm certain you will not fault me for wishing to reclaim the sculpture for safekeeping. I shall be there to make arrangements for her transportation shortly. I understand. I will be waiting to attend to you. Again, Signore, my sincerest apologies. The call ended and Marcus handed the phone back to Vali. I took a single step toward Marcus. I think this comment is hilarious, by the way. Actually, seeing Vali as Alexander Skarsgård, because apparently I cast in my head at least one character per book as Alexander Skarsgård. At least. 
sometimes more than one. I mean, I don't know. I just like the guy. (laughs) I took a single step toward Marcus. So we'll head over to the academia before the meeting. I will go, little Ivanov. He avoided meeting my eyes. I'm going to read that comment for the people who are only on audio. Mandy (laughs) says, uh, I totally feel like Alexander, meaning Alexander Skarsgård, is to your books what the cameos of Stanley are to the Marvel movies. (laughs) I think that's hilarious. (laughs) I'm trying to think if there's any other actors who I use as frequently as him, and I do not think that there are. I mean, like, I feel like he's really my only repeat. Maybe, okay, maybe now we have a Keanu Reeves repeat because Keanu was my inspiration for um, Colin from All World Online. Uh, And now he is like retroactively my inspiration for Dom. So (laughs) Keanu now has multiple characters in my books. (laughs) I will go little Ivanov. He avoided meeting my eyes. You will stay here, and I will return to fetch you before our meeting with the agent, when more of your guards are available. I stared up at the plaster moldings on the ceiling and took a deep breath, then focused once again on the most obstinate man in the world. Marcus, you're doing that thing again. He had a bad habit of trying to order me around. Frustration flashed in those golden eyes. There is no need for your presence at Del Academia. It is merely an administrative issue. Then send Carlisle or Dom, I countered. It is a matter I would greatly prefer to attend to myself. Then I'm coming with you, I said, forcing a bright smile. Volley and Sandra were planning on accompanying us later anyway, so there should be no problem having them join us now. Right, Volley? I didn't look away from Marcus. Volley cleared his throat. If that is your wish, mess with. My smile widened. There were a few perks to being the prophesied savior of an entire species of godlike beings, one being that my suggestions carried a whole lot of weight. It is. Thank you, Volley, I said, watching Marcus's jaw clench and unclench and his nostrils flare repeatedly. Please go inform Sandra. Volley didn't waste any time in leaving us. He shut the door quietly, and I listened as his footsteps retreated too quickly for a walk. Marcus took a deep breath, exhaling heavily. I dislike the idea of you leaving the palazzo without a full retinue of guards. He shook his head. If something were to happen to you, I... My will to not be left behind for the umpteenth time since we'd been in Florence threatened to crumble under the sheer force of concern shining in Marcus's eyes. I straightened my spine and held my head high. And if I stay here, safe and sound, behind high walls and locked doors, but something happens to you, then what happens to me? I closed the distance between us in two long strides and reached up, placing my hands against his contoured cheek. The results are the same either way, Marcus. We made sure of that the moment we sealed our bond. Like it or not, I let the corner of my mouth quirk up in a crooked smile. And I think you like it. You're stuck with me. Marcus's lips twitched. It infuriates me when you use logical arguments. I grinned, stood on my tiptoes, and pressed my lips against his. (laughs) 
Mandy is fan casting Dorman from book two, Time Anomaly, as Brendan Fraser. The mummy era Brendan Fraser, I'm assuming. I like that. I also could kind of see him. He's So Dorman is actually based on a real person, which makes it hard to fan cast him. But I actually could kind of see him as, what is his name? The guy who's in the new Star Trek movies and he has the really blue eyes. He was in Wonder Woman. What is his name? Chris Pine. Thank you. Chris Pine, I can kind of see as Dorman. I don't know. He just has, he's, he can do that kind of like, aw shucks, all American boy kind of thing, which Dorman is very much, Dorman's a really interesting character. I think it's, it, I mean, I'm talking about him and he's not even in this yet. <laughs> so, um, teaser for book two, season three. <laughs> I grinned, stood on my tiptoes and pressed my lips against his. Marcus's arms were around me in an instant. The fingers of one hand splayed against the small of my back while his other hand gripped the back of my neck. He took control of the embrace, and it was control I relinquished willingly, simply trying to hold on to sanity as he unleashed a thunderstorm of a kiss. Sometimes I was convinced that Marcus's angry kisses were my favorite. It was short but far from sweet, and when he pulled away, I was left gasping for air. Well, that was nice, I said, smoothing down my hair and clearing my throat. Marcus smirked and raised one eyebrow. Heat flushed my neck and cheeks. Yeah, so, um, I cleared my throat again and held the necklace out to him. Please? He accepted the necklace, holding it up so the pendant dangled in front of his face. It was a 3,000-year-old lapis lazuli falcon, about the size of a house key, and had been affixed in a silver setting to convert it into a pendant. Marcus had given it to me the previous night, almost looking bashful as he opened a tiny wooden jewelry box and said, A falcon for my she-falcon. Do you truly like it? He asked me now. I turned around so he could secure the clasp behind my neck. The pendant settled against my breastbone, and I touched my fingertips to its cool, smooth surface. To wear something that symbolized Marcus, Haru, so close to my heart, Marcus, I love it. My voice sounded thick, and I blinked rapidly and cleared my throat. Marcus pressed his lips to the base of my neck, just above the chain's clasp. Then I am pleased. He placed his hands on my shoulders and turned me around, scanning me from head to toe. The faintest line appeared between his eyebrows. What? Is something wrong with what I'm wearing? I glanced down. The white linen of my sundress was a little rumpled from what had almost happened a few minutes earlier, but it wasn't stained or torn, and I couldn't find any fault with the silver-embellished sandals on my feet or the slender leather belt cinched around my waist. I smoothed my hands down the skirt of my dress compulsively and repeated, What? Marcus frowned. I'm not sure. I just... His eyes returned to my face and he shook his head. A trick of the mind, I think. His lips spread into a heartbreakingly handsome smile. I blame you. You fill my head with such strange, fanciful notions every day. Such impossible dreams every night. My eyebrows rose. Right. Again, Marcus shook his head, laughing softly to himself. He quickly buttoned his shirt and slipped on his shoes before taking my hand and threading our fingers together. Come, little Ivanov. It would seem we have a busy day ahead of us. 
2. Among and Apart Since the Galleria dell'Accademia wasn't far from the council's palazzo, just across the Fiume Arno, the river splitting Florence in two, and several blocks to the north in the heart of the city, we decided to walk. I was utterly delighted. Sotheby's was far enough away from the palazzo that I had expected I would only get to see Florence through a rolled-up car window. But now, since foot traffic would likely make driving to the Academia take longer than walking, I had a chance to be a genuine, slow-walking, gaping-at-my-surroundings tourist. I just wished I had a camera. I was in a state of awe as we stepped onto the south end of the Ponte Vecchio Bridge, the medieval bridge famous for still being lined by tiny shops as it would have been hundreds of years ago. Only Marcus's hold on my hand kept me moving forward. It was the beginning of summer, and despite it still being relatively early in the morning, the pedestrian-only bridge was packed with tourists on either side, most pausing every few yards to stare into the window display of the next tiny boutique jewelry shop in an endless line of nearly identical shops. Lucky for our foursome, Volley, Sandra, Marcus, and me, there was a relatively clear path down the center of the bridge, and we were able to make our way across fairly quickly. Volley took point, which seemed to entail looking everywhere at once, while taking momentary breaks every now and again to stare down anyone who had taken an interest in Marcus and me. Sandra, a childlike woman who was at least as deadly as Volley, and also one of Marcus's grandchildren, trailed a short distance behind us. With a brief glance over my shoulder, I saw that she was doing essentially the same thing as Volley, with just a touch more glaring. While we crossed the bridge, I gawked at the scene around us, but when we neared its end, I turned my attention to Marcus and gave his hand a squeeze. So, you own a Michelangelo sculpture. I do, he said, scanning the myriad of people and stone and stucco buildings with almost as intense a focus as Volley and Sandra. I held back a smile. Tell me, Marcus, why do you own a Michelangelo sculpture? The corner of his mouth lifted and he narrowed his eyes and pretended to frown as he continued to watch our surroundings. Well, I suppose it's because I quite enjoy the way it looks. A soft laugh glided up my throat. (laughs) And how do you own a Michelangelo sculpture? I was expecting him to say something along the lines of, I bought it. But that would have been far too simple. I was being naive, still thinking like a human. I commissioned it. I stopped mid-step at the foot of the bridge and gaped at him. You commissioned it. Marcus looked back at me over his shoulder, one eyebrow raised. I did. From Michelangelo. He glanced around, looking bored, but I caught that telltale twitch at the corner of his mouth. The very one. I held up a hand. The same guy who made the David and painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? We're talking about the same guy, right? Marcus tugged on my hand, but I refused to budge. He sighed. Yes, little Ivanov, we are speaking of the same man. His momentary amusement fizzled away, and he returned to scanning the people around us. May we please continue? I'm eager to assess the damage and conclude this unwelcome business as quickly as possible. I pursed my lips and studied his tensed features. 
You mean you want to interrogate their security people and confiscate any video footage of the break-in as soon as possible, so you can hunt down whoever vandalized your precious sculpture and make them kneel before you and beg for your forgiveness right before you do something exceptionally painful to them. Right? Marcus met first Bali's eyes, then Sandra's, nodding once to each of them before releasing my hand and turning to face me fully. He stepped as close as possible without actually touching me, and leaned in until his lips were a hair's breadth from my ear. You're right. I will interrogate the Academia's security personnel. I will confiscate their video footage, and I will track down the offending party. He paused, inhaled, held his breath. I did the same. But you're wrong about one thing. The only person I desire to have kneeling before me, little Ivanov, is you. And I promise you that it is for a reason that has nothing to do with pain. Suddenly parched, I swallowed. Several times. Oh, well, I cleared my throat. I see. Marcus pulled away, his eyes glinting wickedly. Now, may we continue? At a loss for words, and unable to look away from those golden pools of sin, I nodded and let Marcus lead me forward once more. A short way from the bridge, the street widened and the crowd thinned noticeably. We passed shop fronts in the bottom floors of antiquated four- and five-story buildings, carrying everything from shoes, hats, and dresses to sunglasses and jewelry, as well as cafes, gelaterias, banks, and even a pharmacy. An enormous open-air building came into view on the left side of the street, hosting a bustling outdoor market that looked like it could provide hours of enjoyment. My steps slowed as I imagined wandering from stall to stall, looking at scarves and trinkets and leather bags. It wasn't that I wanted to buy anything. I already had everything I needed, and I had never been prone to excess. I didn't even have a car back in Seattle, and I had one, maybe two, really nice dresses— but I wanted the experience, the memory, something I could keep with me forever. I just wanted to feel like I was actually here. The Loggia del Porcellino, Marcus said, catching my line of sight and what was probably a ridiculous look of longing. Perhaps we'll stop by when we're finished, if we have time, he added as we headed away from the haggling hubbub. I forget that this is your first time in Firenze, and that you have spent most of it locked up inside the palazzo. He apologized with a smile and a squeeze of my hand. Most would have complained by now. I met his eyes and returned his smile. I enjoy the gardens. They're peaceful, which is surprising given how close they are to all this. I gestured to the seemingly endless sea of pedestrians. You're mastering the arts of deflection, little Ivanov. He sent me an approving glance. An important skill if you're to be a successful leader among our people. But that is aside from the point. Until we leave for Cairo, I shall show you as much as I can of the city, and we'll begin tonight, after we finish, with the Sotheby's agent. How does that sound? I beamed at him. It sounds fantastic, Marcus. 3. Within and Without the entrance to the Galleria dell'Accademia, where Michelangelo's notorious Statue of David was on display, was remarkably unassuming. The simple oversized wooden door in the stucco wall was one in an intermittent line of others, just like it, 
and it lent the Academia an air of humility that seemed at odds with the long column of people milling along the exterior of the museum, waiting to enter. We neither waited nor milled. Marcus guided me through a break in the crowd and straight into the Academia through the exit, Sandra and Volley flanking us. Embarrassment heated my cheeks as I imagined being one of the hundreds of people waiting in line, watching someone else barge in through the back door. Hey, a woman shouted. You can't do that. Harry, they can't just do that. It's not fair. Pausing, I glanced over my shoulder and spotted the woman. She was poking a rather apathetic-looking man with one hand and pointing at us with the other. My flush burned hotter, and I offered her a tight-lipped smile. Marcus gave my hand a squeeze before releasing it, and I looked away from the outraged woman. Ah, Signor Bahur, my name is Giovanni. I was sent to wait for you. Our greeter was a young man with a head of curly dark hair and pleasant, wide-set features. He shook Marcus's hand with gusto. I was expecting Superintendent Pietro Gaspari to meet me, Marcus said as Giovanni released his hand. Ah, yes, Signor Gaspari is very sorry he cannot be here. He was called away for family business. Very important. I hope everything is all right. Though Marcus's words displayed a polite level of concern, his voice was bland. Giovanni bowed his head. Yes, yes, I believe so, but do not worry. Signor Gaspari called in a replacement to handle the situation for him, and we already moved La Donna Triste to a restricted area upstairs as soon as we noticed it. I am pleased to hear it, Marcus said, sounding about as far from pleased as someone could get. He extended his arm toward a pair of fogged glass doors. May we proceed? But Giovanni didn't see Marcus's gesture. He was too busy staring at me, his lips parted and his eyes wide. Madonna. I don't know how to say this. I'm sorry. If you are Italian, (laughs) I'm about to butcher your language. (laughs) Madonna, la somiglianza. (laughs) That was terrible. Somiglianza. Somiglianza. Madonna, la somiglianza. He looked like he'd seen a ghost. Marcus cleared his throat, and I glanced at him in time to see him giving Giovanni his equivalent of a death stare. Una coincidenza, niente di più. <laughs> Again? I don't, I don't speak Italian. <laughs> I've been there a couple times, but I don't speak the language very well at all. Una coincidenza, niente di più. <laughs> più. It looked più? Pi, più? I don't know. Though Italian wasn't one of the languages I had studied as an archaeologist specializing in ancient Egypt, I was familiar with enough of it that I could catch the gist of the exchange. Something about my appearance was shocking to Giovanni, and Marcus was claiming there was some sort of a coincidence. Eyebrows raised, I looked from Marcus to the young man and back and cleared my throat, loudly. It was practically a cough. Marcus's eyes flicked to mine for the briefest moment. I apologize, signora, Giovanni rushed to say. Your beauty stunned me for a moment, is all. I sent Marcus a sidelong glance, but he wouldn't meet my eyes. I'm sure... 
Come, come, I take you to Ladonna. Giovanni ushered Marcus and me toward the doors, Sandra and Vali following close behind us. We entered a long, high-ceilinged gallery filled with people, most concentrated near a rotunda at the far end, where the David held court, towering over them. Others stood in clusters all along the gallery's walls, staring up at the few enormous paintings, which practically dripped religious iconography, or resting on the built-in mahogany benches below the Renaissance masterpieces. I stared around as Giovanni guided us through the mess of people, heading straight for the David. But impressive as the famous statue of the giant killer was, it didn't hold my attention for long. The handful of huge unfinished marble sculptures scattered along the sides of the gallery captivated me completely. Each depicted a nude man, and though each was utterly unique, they all shared a sense of being trapped within the stone. It was like their creator had been attempting to set them free, but he'd given up, and now they were stuck, encased in stone. Forever. When I said as much to Marcus, he called ahead to Giovanni in Italian and drew me closer to the nearest partially revealed male form, which displayed only a pair of rough-hewn legs, a muscular torso, and a pair and part of an arm. Which is precisely why they are known as the prisoners to many, Marcus said as he laced our fingers together. I glanced down at the placard. Atlas. It seemed a fitting name for the slightly hunched-over figure— though rather than holding the world, it appeared that the world was holding the poor trapped soul. They're beautiful. I looked at Marcus, then continued studying the unfinished sculpture. And a little disturbing. Marcus nodded. An accurate assessment, in my opinion. Only when I felt him tug on my hand did I realize he had started walking away. I resisted, feeling an uncomfortable kinship with this half-formed stone man. Come on, little Ivanov. Marcus gave my hand another tug. The crowd has thinned. As I walked away, I continued to stare at Atlas for a few more heartbeats before turning my attention to the sole statue in the rotunda ahead. There was only a scattering of people around him now, as though a guided tour group had just moved on. Marcus stopped near the low glass barrier surrounding the David and said something else to Giovanni, who was waiting partway down the narrower gallery to the left of the rotunda. I stepped in front of Marcus, moving as close to the barrier as possible to get a better look at the sculpture. I stared at the David for minutes, studying the precision and delicacy with which he had been formed and finished. He was so perfect, so lifelike, but at the same time, subtle things were off about him. His lowered hand was in my direct line of sight, and once my eyes latched onto it, I couldn't tear them away. What do you think? Marcus asked from behind me. His hand, I shook my head. It's so big. Compared to the rest of him, I mean, it's really big. Distractingly so. Marcus moved closer to me, wrapping his arms around my waist and resting his cheek against my hair. It was for perspective. I relaxed against him, no longer so distracted, at least not by the David's huge hand. Is that so? David here was originally intended to decorate the roofline of the Duomo. From so far below, he would have appeared quite proportionate. Marcus paused, taking a long, slow inhale. He exhaled with a groan and tightened his hold around my waist. It's not uncommon knowledge. I'm surprised you don't already know. 
I sighed and leaned my head back against his shoulder. This is what I know about Michelangelo. I held up my hand to take points off with my fingers and said, Renaissance, the Statue of David, the Sistine Chapel, and that's about it. I dropped my hand. I never really studied the Renaissance, not after high school, I added, wrinkling my nose. It just felt too recent. Your preference for the ancient world has left you ignorant of the more recent past, little Ivanov. He chuckled. Though I must admit that I appreciate your preference for the ancient. It has benefited me greatly, and often. I closed my eyes in an effort to shield myself from the truth behind his words, that he was as ancient as the people I loved to study. It was useless. I could no more ignore the fact that Marcus was over 4,000 years old than I could avoid the possibility that one day I might be just as ancient. Marcus must have caught a glimpse of my expression because he moved his lips closer to my ear and whispered, Let go of what you were, Lex. Embrace what you are. Were and are. That was the problem. I opened my eyes and craned my neck so I could see his face. Why can't I be both? I wanted to hold on to my humanity, to continue to appreciate each moment for what it was, unique and precious. Each moment would only happen once. Each second would only pass once, no matter how many times I ventured into the ought to watch a replay. I wanted to live my life, not watch it. An echo wasn't the same. It wasn't real. And above all, I wanted to avoid the ennui that seemed to infect so many Nezhorets over time. A slight frown touched Marcus's lips, and there was a tightness around his eyes that hadn't been there a moment before. But he didn't respond to my question. Instead, he nodded to my two bodyguards, who were standing on opposite sides of the domed chamber, their eyes assessing everything. Stay out here with Vali and Sandra while I take care of this business. I'll only be a moment. But... Marcus turned me around to face him fully and pressed his lips to mine, kissing me deeply. A child giggled, the sound reverberating within the rotunda, and I broke the kiss. My cheeks were on fire. Go, Marcus said. Spend some more time with Atlas and the other prisoners. We won't be able to linger afterward. Biting my lip, I glanced over Marcus's shoulder at the unfinished statues and nodded. There was just something so enthralling about them. Marcus pressed another chaste kiss to my lips before turning and striding away with Giovanni. I watched them walk up the gallery until they passed through a doorway into another area and were out of sight. I wasn't the least bit surprised to find Vali approaching as I made my way back toward Atlas. When neither Marcus nor Dominic was by my side, Vali was always there. His sheer size, all clearly muscle mass, worked as an excellent deterrent for anyone who was even considering approaching me with the intent to harm, while Sandra could just as easily hang back, blend in, look harmless, and catch anyone intending to harm me from afar. I met Volley's ice-blue eyes as he fell in step beside me, matching my meandering pace. Have you been here before? Yes, Miss Wet. I served as a council guard for years, it is what I was doing before I swore my oath to protect you. Hmm, I said, glancing at him with a thoughtful frown. Volley was a gentle giant, at least where I was concerned, but he was also a man of few words. 
Despite the amount of time we spent in each other's presence, I didn't know much about him. And whenever Heru was in town for council business, he would make a point to come here to visit La Donna, which makes more sense now. His eyes touched my face, sliding away quickly, and I was his usual companion. My frown deepened as we took up a position off to the side of Atlas, me studying Vali's pale, stony face, and Vali scowling as he scanned the museum-goers around us. Why does it make more sense now? I asked him. It isn't my place to say, Meswet. You'll have to ask Heru. I crossed my arms and shook my head, cursing myself for being a pushover and staying behind when I should have insisted on going with Marcus. I was getting the rather clear impression that he didn't want me to see this sculpture of his, this sad woman, and I was tempted to march after him and Giovanni to shed some light on the mystery. Thanks to my Nezheret senses, I could still hear them exchanging words as they moved further away. It wouldn't be hard to find them. Or, I realized, I could always slip into the ot and take a peek that way. I cleared my throat and uncrossed my arms. I definitely wasn't ready to risk another trip into the ot. Not yet. Not so soon after. Everything. Looking back up at Bali, I let the subject of LaDonna drop. It wasn't his fault Marcus was being... Well, Marcus. Do you have a favorite prisoner, Vali? He blinked like he was surprised by my question. After a moment, he nodded to the sculpture opposite Atlas, a more fully formed but still rough-hewn man whose neck was bent in an uncomfortable-looking angle. The bearded slave, he said. He reminds me of my grandfather, my mother's human father, not Heru. He was a great Viking explorer. An excellent warrior. His lips curved into the tiniest possible smile as he allowed himself a stolen moment of nostalgia. A few seconds later, he was back to scanning the people around us. A new wave was filling the gallery, and I figured it was just another guided tour group. I noticed the woman who had been so outraged when we had slipped in through the exit, five policemen trailing behind her. When our eyes met, she grinned. I was about to mention her odd reaction to Vali when my ears picked up on a familiar, unwelcome voice coming from the direction Marcus and Giovanni had gone, just barely audible over the crowd. Sarah, a woman who knew Marcus with intimate familiarity. Be here. I made special arrangement to be the one to assist you. She sounded just as sultry and overtly provocative as she had when I had eavesdropped on her and Marcus's meeting in his tent months ago. It was the same tone that had launched me into an instinctive Nezheret reaction, resulting in me threatening her life if she ever came near Marcus again, and claiming him as the Nezheret equivalent of my husband. Narrowing my eyes, I scowled. That same instinct was kicking in again, making me hunger for Sarah's terror, thirst, for her tears. Oblivious to my immediate surroundings, I spun on my heel and started to head back up the gallery to track them down, but the crowd had thickened to the point that I had to push between people to get anywhere. I thought you returned to London, I heard Marcus say. He had to know I could hear them. Had to suspect I was on my way to them. You should have stayed there. Oh, I did go to London, and I made a very interesting new friend who coincidentally knew a bit about our little falling out, and your new woman. 
He made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and... I had made my way through most of the rotunda when a large hand wrapped around my upper arm, jerking me to a halt. I turned to Dalvali to let me go, and snapped my mouth shut almost as soon as I had opened it. Instead of Vali's pale blue eyes, I was staring into the hazel eyes of a stranger. A large, leering, male stranger. A heartbeat later, I recognized him. He was the bored man the outraged woman had been poking just outside. He yanked me backward, into the edge of the crowd, and leaned in closer. I told Set this would be easy. I had to give him a gross man voice. That's it for episode one of season two of the Read by the Author podcast with me reading Resonance, the first novella in the Echo trilogy. It's the novella between book one and book two, Echo and Time and Time Anomaly. I will be back next week to read chapters four, five, and six of Resonance. So I hope to see you then. And until then, happy reading.